0: Hello, and welcome to the CSIS Strategic Technologies Podcast. My name is Katrina Timlin, and I am an Associate Fellow in the Strategic Technologies Program. One of our current research topics is on the future of the Internet, where we are studying the ways innovative technologies change how people interact and connect. Among the innovative technologies receiving a lot of attention these days are virtual reality and augmented reality. This year, Goldman Sachs projected that augmented and virtual reality could become an $80 billion industry by 2025. And to put that in perspective, that's about roughly the size of the PC industry today. To shed some light on these technologies, we will be talking to Dr. Mark Livingston about the differences between augmented reality, virtual reality, and their applications in military and civilian environments. Dr. Mark Livingston is a research scientist at the Naval Research Laboratory. And for eight years, Mark has served as head of the Virtual Environments and Visualization Section and of the Visual Analytics Laboratory. He directs and conducts research on visual analytics and augmented reality, focusing on human factors and applications. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. So to start off, how do you start to explain virtual reality to your friends or acquaintances, people that aren't um, technically savvy or have a technical background?
1: It really try to relate it to what people know and what people know a lot about these days is computer games, right video games, you know everything from the old Atari systems up through modern PlayStation and you know the Connect with the Microsoft Xbox and so forth. Those technologies have a lot of similarity to and grew out of the same industry that the virtual reality and augmented reality grew out of. I could go back and explain the real history of it, and it's an interesting story in and of itself. But for the most part, I talk about, well, the idea of a computer game where you are completely immersed inside it. That's essentially what virtual reality is. Uh, And, in fact, games are one of the modalities that are used even for serious applications. There's a whole field called serious games. Uh, Augmented reality is a little harder for people to grasp onto, but... People get it when you start talking about things like the first down line that are on football broadcasts, pretty much everything that's done in the United States, you know, every football game in the United States has these first down downlines. Uh, in the Olympic coverage, they started putting in the lines of where to, they would need to be, for, uh, be on world record pace, right, and that is sort of they're chasing that down the pool or they're ahead of it if they're doing really well. And then, of course, the flags are laid on top. Those are simple elements of what an augmented reality system is, and people have seen those things. So we try to relate it to that and then say, well, think about what that would mean if you were a fighter pilot and you had this sort of view out of the cockpit. Or if you were driving your car, and, and head-up displays are available on some cars today still, what would that mean? You could see projections of information about the road in front of you. Uh, if it were foggy, maybe you could put lane lines up there you know, in a graphical sense that would be hopefully precisely aligned to the actual edges of the road. Those are the kind of things that people can grasp onto, and that's essentially what augmented reality is, is let's put in some computer graphics on top of your view of the world around you so that you can understand more about the world than you can see with your natural vision at that moment, whether it's because of reduced visibility or because there's something physically blocking your way.
0: You mentioned a lot of different applications, heads-up displays, um, pilots, and the armed forces in particular have a long history of developing augmented reality and um, virtual reality applications for training simulations and uh, the super cockpit as an example. Why specifically is the Navy interested in these technologies? Um, what are the benefits of augmented reality?
1: I think really the benefits for the Navy are the benefits for you know, DOD and the civilian world in general, give us a better vision, a better understanding of the world around us. You know, we talk about in military context, situation awareness. Right? It's a term you'll hear. And it essentially means, you know, what just happened, what is happening right now, and what's going to happen in the immediate future, whatever your time frame might be. If you need to understand the world better, and there's something that we can display that will help you understand your, your environment better— that's a good reason for augmented reality. or f- and, and if you want to train and get a nice reproduction of the world of what you're going to see when you get out there in the, in the field, again, that's a good reason to use virtual environments. So the military has been, as you say, you mentioned the super cockpit. Tom Furness's work started at the Air Force Research Lab, I want to say around 1967 or 68. So it's about as early a project in the augmented reality and virtual reality space as there is. Uh, and it is one of the most successful in the sense of that thing exists now. I haven't really talked to a lot of pilots who have used it, and it's not something they're going to talk about in public. But that system does exist, and uh, you know it's a successful application in that it is in the field. Right, so, and how much they actually use it, I I couldn't say, obviously. But it's you know an interesting you know sort of historical application because it is one of the first things. All the recent applications, the consumer level things, the medical field, which is huge now in augmented reality, those all came a little bit later.
0: Yeah, that's one of the surprise. The surprising things to me it was it was when I was doing research for this and um, learning a bit more about the history. And you mentioned that the first I, I think that it was the the first head mounted display system by Ivan Sutherland was in 1968. So th- the timing of this is is interesting because you have this long history of military development and use of these technologies, but now you're seeing a lot of media hype and um, investment in this, and that it's very cutting edge and new. So could you get into detail about how, how new is this really? Like, who are the pioneers of this technology, and how do you see it changing um, over what, what, are, what are we seeing in the commercial applications uh, that is different than technologies that have already been deployed and used by the military?
1: It's one of these, you know, the, the argument goes back and forth between sort of the old guard and the, the younger researchers, you mentioned Professor Ivan Sutherland. Of course, Evan, Su- Evan Sutherland is the company he eventually founded. Uh, initially, he's the founder of computer graphics and then of, of virtual reality and of augmented reality. It's interesting to note that his first virtual reality system was, in fact, an augmented reality system. It was see-through. That is, you could physically see the world around you in his system. Yes, he built that display in 1968, uh, and it was a monster. It was referred to as the Sword of Damocles because of the weight, uh, needing a mechanical harness to actually hold the display up for you. Uh, But he was the pioneer and said Tom Furness picked up his work and uh, almost immediately started working at the Air Force Research Lab. And there were a few other scattered products. I've uh, seen some things, you know, in the 80s and 70s of people who were working on things, but... It really kicked off, again, the first hype cycle a lot of us consider to be the early 90s. Uh, There was some interest, again, DARPA had a project out there that was funding a lot of work in universities and, and industry research labs. And again, what can we do for, you know, soldiers? What can we do with the technology in general? So, there are a number of people who started picking up on that. Um, my advisor at the University of North Carolina was Henry Fuchs. Uh, he had been a student of Ivan Sutherland at the University of Utah, and so he remembered this technology. And when his wife went in for an amniocentesis, he said, "There's got to be a better way than, you know, take the ultrasound wand, look at where the baby might be, at the fetus might be, take, put the wand down, pick up the needle, and then jab it in there and hope that the fetus hasn't moved." You know. And he says, so wait a minute, you know, I could use this technology that Professor Sutherland had. And so he started working on medical applications at the University of North Carolina. Around the same time, uh, Steve Feiner at the University of Columbia got very interested in what, what could we do with mobile applications. Now, mobile hardware at that time was barely mobile a bit compared to what we have now, of course. But, you know, they had harnessed backpacks, and that got a lot of people interested in the military side. And that work was funded by Office of Naval Research, uh, who also at the same time started funding NRL to do work in that area. And so we started looking at what could we do for the dismounted warfighter, because Tom Furness had already been showing that it was useful to the fighter pilots. Uh, And there were other projects that started around that time as well. And there were things that were, you know, happening in other places that weren't really connected, but eventually became connected. Uh, The military had started getting uh, involved in the idea of virtual environments or immersive environments, at least, for training. Uh, Somewhere in the, I guess, uh, around Aspen movie map must be around the late 70s, early 80s. But it's, you know, a project that not a lot of people really know about these days. But that kind of started people thinking well maybe these immersive environments would be good for training and for rehearsing you know so if you could get some sort of video of what it is you're going to be looking at or some sort of data that would allow you to recreate that then you've got a pretty good training environment and that was the thing that got the, the military started on thinking about sort of virtual training um that's a long time ago i said a lot of people don't even know about the project anymore because it's sort of established now but the idea was that again if you can immerse yourself and get a physically realistic and behaviorally realistic simulation of what it's going to be when you walk out there, that's an advantage as a soldier, I would think. And most soldiers are pretty convinced of it. And of course, now you have a generation of soldiers who grew up playing video games, and they're used to those kind of environments.
0: What is the difference in, you know, now we don't have these headsets that have to be held up by cranes, but um, other than the the hardware, what has changed about the technology in terms of latency, and um, what, where are the kinks that had to work themselves out to progress from the, the older um, the Aspen map um, to modern-day virtual reality applications?
1: It's, it's really primarily the hardware, but uh, there are advancements, and still being advancements, made in the hardware. Like I said the computers are pretty much where we need them to be for most of these systems. The displays could still use a little bit of work. Uh, the tracking could use a lot of work in some aspects. But it's also when you have the technology that's good enough to really try a reasonable attempt at some of these applications, then you start to realize, well, how is a human being going to react to this? And so one of the things that we've been doing is working on the human factors issues. Uh, what happens to your vision when you start to look through these displays. You know, for example, I've given a couple of you know applications where it says, well we'd like to look through and see something that is physically hidden. Right? Uh, you know, the amniocentesis example is obviously one of those where you're looking through the surface of the skin to wherever the data is being collected in the patient's body. Well, you know, for the military, we sat down with some of the folks and said, what's hard for you right now when you go out into combat And they said, well, one of the hardest things is in urban combat, as soon as somebody walks around the corner, I really don't know where they are anymore. I mean, I can talk to them on the radio, maybe, if I can risk radio communications. Maybe I have one of these trackers where if I look down at a PDA or a tablet, I can get some sort of map, and maybe that map even orient itself to the world for me, at least from a 2D perspective. And maybe that gives me some understanding of where they are. But... It's not as good as being able to just look up and see where they are right now. Are they in my line of fire? If I shoot through the building here, am I at risking them? Uh, And so uh, there are lots of things where we said, oh, let's – okay, what if we had the ability to look through walls? Well, that's a pretty unnatural thing for a human being to do. We're not used to doing that. So – what does that mean if I can suddenly start to see, like, you know, I'm Superman, I have X-ray vision now? Well, in the comics and the movies and TV shows, it worked perfectly, right? He saw just to the right depth with just the right sort of field of view. And he saw exactly what the, whatever the storyline needed to continue that uh, story. It doesn't work that well in practice obviously we don't really know how how to control the depth how do we align this where the graphics look like they're at that depth that's a very challenging thing to do because physically that's not the case and the perceptual cues that we use in the depth uh, in human vision don't match up in these displays and there really is almost no way to make some of them match up and so well what does that mean can we give you this very unnatural percept in a practical system that's something that you can use as a natural thing, or is it gonna take a lot of training and retraining, and then when you take it off, you're gonna to have to have this sort of after effect. So we like to avoid those things. So human factors became a very big issue. And it was something that nobody else was working on at the time, so we started working on that, especially the x-ray vision problem, uh, which is a term that actually dates back to the UNC work, but uh, you know is uh, <clears throat> something that a lot of people will use now, and we use in papers now, and people understand what it means. And it's a very difficult thing to provide for somebody. There are other things, obviously, you know, how do you interact with these systems? If you're a soldier and you're holding a gun, you don't have your hands free. What does that mean? How else can we get input into the system? Uh, If you're a doctor, you probably don't want to be sitting there putting down your instruments to go and operate some computer. So, again, how do you interact with that system? And those two things, even though it's the same problem, might not have the same solution because, you know, obviously the operating field is very different than the military theater. Uh, If you're working in industry and you're assembling a car or an airplane, right, the Boeing project is another one of those early projects, you know, again, what are your constraints on what are you willing to sacrifice in order to make, give, have something that can be a successful system? Uh, And that system at the time was technically a great success, but the human factors killed it because people just didn't like wearing the systems. Uh, They were uncomfortable, they were uh, a little clunky looking, and frankly, if they, the One of the designers said at one of the conferences that if they hadn't put the test area right outside the break room where everybody's friends were watching them wear this very geeky looking system, they might have had more success, uh, Is they really think that it was a lot of people's perception of it looks silly, right? You know, people weren't quite used to seeing those things now in science fiction or just walking down the street you might see that somebody's wearing some sort of display on their face instead of you know what a pair of eyeglasses or a bulky pair of sunglasses they're wearing a, a computer display and that's again part of that whole human factors question that people were thinking about some of those things Tom Furness thought about a lot of those things way back in the in the early 80s but again they were they weren't until the systems got good enough to have a, a real application and not sort of fall on technological considerations of, well how good is the display how good is the tracking you can't really measure some of those human factors
0: Yeah, so it seems it's not just the technology that has to evolve, but how we fit it into a very, to serve a tactical purpose in in military or in, in medicine. When you were talking it Called to Mind, I don't know if you've seen the picture of Mark Zuckerberg demoing the Samsung virtual reality at at the Mobile World Congress, where he's walking through a sea of people with um, virtual reality headsets. Some of the reactions to that were pretty negative in in the media. People were kind of freaked out that everyone is sitting there in their isolated chairs with their sets and worried about the implications that this technology could have. So do you share some of those concerns? And what do you think the social implications are of these technologies as more people start to adopt them?
1: Right, it's it's an interesting question. It's something that people again have been thinking about for quite a while. Sony had a display that was very successful from a technical perspective and was widely used in the research community for a decade or more. The reason they dropped it was because they were concerned about liability. What if somebody was you know using this personal display and you know walked into traffic? You know, would they be liable for something like that? And that was the kind of issue that they were concerned about. Uh, and so they this dropped dis- the, display. What uh, was the this display. The display was called the Glasstron. And uh-huh. so it was. Uh, we have, we still have some. They still work, actually. Uh, it was just one of the more successful displays. Uh, starting, I guess, it was available. Maybe I'm going to say around the early '90s, and it was, they said, widely used in the research community for a very long time. But again, Sony decided they were going to get out of that for a while because they weren't quite sure. Well, what are the, you know, what are the liability issues when somebody's wearing our display and they do something that is, you know, not doesn't even keep with common sense that they wouldn't normally do, right, because they were distracted. So people were worrying about, well, how distracted are you from? the world in front of you if you're looking at something on your display and that doesn't go away just because you can physically see the world in front of you. There's still an issue of, well, are you distracted? Just like are you distracted when you're driving by, you know, the radio or the kids in the back seat or whatever it might be, uh, you know, you can be distracted by something that is, you know, right in front of your face quite easily. So people started thinking about those kind of considerations. And, and I said, Sony, I think, was that was the major reason why they dropped their display. Uh, it also, you know, I said it was a research product, and it's hard to make money on research projects, obviously. But they were concerned about that. Around the same time, uh, Steve Feiner at Columbia was, started thinking about what are the social implications in a wider sense? What about privacy issues? You know, if your data is out there on your display, does that mean somebody can get to that? You know, how secure is this computer you're walking around with? You know, nowadays it's really the question of well, how secure is the data, perhaps on your cell phone, which might be the thing driving this display. But you know, what happens if you know I have a view, I have some data about. I'm an architect. I have some data about a building. I may not want to show that to some prospective clients who, or some competitors who might be coming by. You know, so that's you know, again. Do I have certain levels of data I'm willing to show people and certain levels I'm not? Obviously, that translates very well into the military senses. You know, we, we have classifications of data where you know, I probably can't look at something, but, you know, maybe the commander can. So there are issues like that as well. People start thinking about these things and say, well, you know, how do we solve these? And these are much wider issues than the technology that, it come, that it's based on but you know they certainly are important questions for getting a system that is practical and so uh, some researchers in the in the augmented reality or virtual reality community have been thinking about these things and some researchers have been saying well we're going to let those other the privacy community and the security community worry about those kind of issues and we'll take whatever solutions they make available uh, you know, we haven't looked at those issues so much ourselves, uh, even in the military context. So we typically think, well, you know, we, yeah, there's a data question. How do we get that data? How do we secure that data? And how do we make sure that data stays secure if we're going to broadcast it out into the field for someone to wear to look at on a mobile display? You know, it's one thing to say, well, he can walk out there with the data that's on his PDA, but you know, situations change, you know, in the course of an operation. So, you know, how do we update that? And that's that's an important question we haven't really addressed. But we say, well, you know, there are people who worry about secure communications. So here's some more data for them that they're going to have to send across.
0: Part of the research here we're doing is looking how people connect to devices and connect to each other through the internet over a 5-10 year span. What do you see as the role of augmented and virtual reality in shaping how people connect to each other through the internet? Do you see this playing a large role?
1: Is it people typically think about augmented reality and virtual reality as display media, you know, how do we it's an output mechanism. You know, so how you connect in the network is sort of a separate question having said that does your augmented reality or your virtual reality say well hey you know here's a hub here if i walk into a starbucks ah here's a hub here's the amount of traffic on it do you want to think about maybe there's, you know, if you really need a wireless connection right now, this one's going to be very busy. Maybe you should try, you know, this next Starbucks probably three blocks away. So there are things you could think about for those kind of applications. It's not really a central theme in a lot of the augmented reality and virtual reality research until you get to an application that needs that. And right now, the applications are diverse, so there are a couple of applications that think about those kinds of things. Uh, tourist applications might be in one of those, but... Uh, that's not a big part of the field. It's not a central theme in the research. said we're still mostly focused on the displays and how do we how do we improve the technology? What improvements in the technology do we need and to make those devices more usable by people? So there are a few people who think about those kinds of issues, but we most of us think of it as an orthogonal issue to the to central issues for research in augmented reality, virtual reality.
0: Getting to applications. So what virtual reality and augmented reality applications do you see as being prime for wider use and greater adoption?
1: This is a question people have been asking for quite a while. What's the killer app, right? So, we always ask this in computer circles. It's a good question. Uh, for consumers, I think there are two possibilities. One is the gaming community. Are people going to be accepting this as a media for their games? There are certain games now where you can wear a headset and it's a little bit more immersive, a little more sort of you're engrossed in that world that is pictured in front of you because I don't see the walls of my living room or wherever I've set this thing up. So that's one possibility. Uh, For augmented reality that doesn't work so well uh, because again you're going to see what's physically around you and if the idea is to be immersed in some other world augmented reality isn't your choice of mechanism. So people look at the tourist applications, you know, do I, I mentioned the example of, you know, where's the metro station now, if I'm a tourist in this town, or even if I'm, you know, someone who just isn't very familiar with the area, you know, can I get directions to where I want to go? If you had Google Maps on your phone, or whatever equivalent you might like, that's certainly one level of how do I get there. But you know, even in, let's suppose your phone can even orient the map for you so that if you hold the thing down in front of you and you turn the phone, it will automatically say, no, this is, you know, the direction that is up in front of you now is the, is the way you're facing right now. It's still, it's not as easy as look at the signpost, go to this place, turn here, you know, follow the arrows. And so that's something that people have talked about as pot- potentially at least uh, an application that would get wide adoption. Is that something that you can make a lot of money on selling? Probably not. It's a pretty—it's a—it's a phone app, right? You know, people might pay a small fee for it, but you'd have to sell an awful lot of it to make that—you know—your sustaining application. Uh, so people still think about—you know—groups that are willing to foot larger costs: the military, the medical community, being uh, two of those. Uh, the industrial community. If you can show that—you know—an an AR application provides you know better product you know when you assemble whatever it is you're doing uh, there's you know uh, BMW and Daimler both have projects you know if you can speed up the factory uh, installation process for you know there's some things they do where they insert things into doors like car doors and that was an application that was demonstrated at one of the conferences several years ago it's not an easy thing to do it takes a particular sort of path to work that thing just into the place where it's supposed to go if you can speed up that process and maybe make your workers more efficient well, the, the company might be willing to pay quite a cost to train people to pay for the equipment and so forth. Uh, the same thing in the medical community. How much is it worth to have the doctor, you know, uh, as the UNC uh, team that I was on eventually tested a, a 30% improvement in needle localization in the biopsy? And that was by an experienced physician. How much is that worth? Well, you know, it's, you know, you're it's getting really, the seats, <laughs> you're getting the, the biopsy. it's worth an awful lot, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, those are communities who are willing to foot larger costs. So people still look to those as potentially being the applications that are going to drive the technology. The military, obviously, another group, you know, for whatever political <laughs> implications may be, willing to foot a little bit at larger cost. Again, if it means saving soldiers' lives, you know, that's something that is important, obviously, and you can't really put a value on So there are applications like that that are still, I think, driving a lot of the technology. People still try the games, and there are lots of things that come up, and they go away usually pretty quickly. Uh, There are applications and libraries that you can use to build your own applications on your cell phone. Uh, And there are people who are trying to make markets out of those. Uh, I don't see those companies doing particularly well uh, financially. Uh, And so while the products may be very good from a technical standpoint and there may be a very sort of fervent and ardent user community in a small part of the computer graphics world or a small part of the gaming world, they're not really widespread at this point. And it's hard to foresee that they might be. Uh, But, you know, there are certain things you can imagine that have been suggested Maybe they will maybe one of them will catch on, like I said, the tourist applications. You know, we used to use the example of if you went up to Gettysburg, instead of having, you know, the Ranger sit there and point out at the field, which doesn't look like what it looked like back at the time of the battle, you could sit down with a, you know, and take one of those, you know, the standard sort of binocular things that you see on the on the battlefields and all these tourist places. What if that had augmented reality in it? What if you could then sit there and watch Pickett's Charge come at you from the point where, you know, it started and see where the tree line was, which is not where it is now, and a few other things. You know, the weather that day, because it was, you know, I guess it was very hot. It was July, around around July 4th. And so, you know, what if you could do all those things? What if you could do that at at any of these, you know, major national parks or, you know, historic sites? You know, what if you could walk into a a city and see that, you know, what it used to look like, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, and, and think about, you know, some of the history of the, of the place. Would that catch on? Maybe. Would somebody be willing to foot the cost to do that? Uh, again, maybe. It depends on who would be asked to do it.
0: Yeah, I don't know if History Channel has that <laughs> that big <laughs> of a budget, not. although that would be a really cool way to, right. <laughs> to tour it would a battlefield. Be. And it would,
1: it would make things more interesting for people and make, you know, say again, the history come alive, right? And that's just kind of their mantra. So again, it's an interesting application and people have thought about that, but I don't know that anyone's implemented it yet.
0: What are the applications and the research that you're working on right now that are most interesting and neat for you?
1: So we still work on the human factors issues primarily. Uh, Again, so what does it mean to, you know, look at, you know, through one of these displays? What does that do to your vision? You have a certain level of visual acuity and contrast sensitivity. Uh, What does the display do to that? What does it affect it? Uh, And what we're finding is that some of the displays actually turn you from somebody who is, you know, has normal vision to somebody who is you know, probably not even capable of driving a car legally at that moment because the displays knock down your vision that much.
0: How so? In, in uh, what ways? In terms the- of
1: resolution of the display, in terms of the the loss of contrast when you're looking through this sometimes cloudy display, some of the lenses are very clear, some of the lenses are not so clear. And so that actually changes your vision, essentially blurs your vision. And that's a problem. Uh you know in the military colors have certain meanings right you talk about you know blue is friendly red is enemy and so forth well it turns out blue doesn't display in any of these displays very well if, if it's optical uh combining because you're getting whatever is behind the real world well blue is not very intense and so, whatever is behind it in the real world can overwhelm it very easily. So, your perception of blue suddenly isn't very good. And we've actually measured the color distortion. So, we can turn you from someone with normal color vision with one of these displays. You might end up being colorblind suddenly. What does that mean? You know, especially if you're using color for certain cues. So, those are the kind of things we've looked at in recent uh, years. And you know, what can we do about that? You know, how do we compensate? You know, what do we need to avoid? Can we pre-distort some of the colors so that it looks right? Because your eye will compensate, you know, when you know certain things. Obviously, the X-ray vision problem—it's certainly far from solved—and we still look at it. Uh, and there are a number of groups now who are looking at it. Uh, some former colleagues of mine who, you know, have found applications for this uh, in their own work. You know, again, you know, mobile applications being one of the most interesting because when you start to look at things over a great distance, that becomes an important question. Well, I'm showing you this graphical cue, but how do you integrate that into the 3D world in front of you? You know, is there a difference between you know this is behind the wall, ten feet from you? Or you know, three blocks away? Well, yeah, there probably is. But you know, how do I express that to you in the graphics?
0: Yeah, and how do you prevent someone from running right into the wall when they're focusing on the thing that's behind the wall or other things in their immediate surroundings in the, in the real versus the virtual world?
1: Exactly. And those are the kind of things, again, so what are you paying attention to? You know, how do we make sure you're paying attention to things that you need to pay attention to in both the real and the virtual in, uh, portions of this environment?
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. This has been a really interesting discussion, and you know, maybe in the future we'll have, we'll have this discussion and our listeners will, will be able to see it with their virtual reality headset of choice. So thank you so much again, and thanks for listening to the CSIS Strategic Technologies Podcast.